There are days when no one should rely unduly on his competence. Strength lies in improvisation. All decisive blows are struck left-handed. James Cullinane is an artist with a BFA from Cooper Union. Everyone I worked with at 1071 Fifth Avenue was an artist of some kind, most of us trying to pay the bills and make our own artwork in the big city. A lot of friends were made as we labored to install the latest show at the Goog. I thought of them as co-workers at the time, but looking back now, I consider most of them friends. James was part of a core group that was my introduction to the Guggenheim, and I would work with him in some way whenever I was back uptown all throughout the 90s. It really doesn't seem like that long ago. I remember James sharing the word of the day. He once had shirts printed up with the phrase possible blame opportunity on the back. If you work in certain environments, then you understand. I promised to buy one, but I never did. Sorry about that. To really survive as a freelance art handler, you have to juggle several jobs. James has done just that. He's still doing that. Or up until the quarantine he was. Mr. Cullinane was kind enough to give me a call the other morning. This is me and James catching up after over 20 years. Listen up, people. Larry, hey, it's James. James, how's it going? Good, good morning, how are you? Good, thank you. Good, good to hear your voice. Yeah, good to hear you, too. It's a nice sunny day here in New York. How is it down there? Beautiful. It's a li- well, I think the sun is coming out, but it was we're hazy, so we are have one of those typical uh, hazy uh, uh, subtropical Georgia mornings. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So how long have you been in Athens? Have you been down there since you left the Guggenheim pretty much? Or? Let's uh let's see. Yeah. Well, pretty much. Yeah. I um Yeah. I went in 95 moved down to Athens and then you know I came would go back and forth. Right. On I occasion. remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I never came. But they, go ahead. They keep you busy. Yeah, they keep me busy now that now I'm now that I got my uh, full time job at the museum, I'm occupied, you know. But uh, oh, good. Yeah, but yeah, I, I did. I did. Uh, sometimes I regret uh, leaving the city because I had a, a fantasy about how you know um, easy it would be to get a job <laughs> when I came down here. Right. Yes. Right. I got one. But I, you you lasted and you got one, and Athens must be a really cool town. It is. There's a lot. Yeah, it's a great. It's a little jewel. It's like a jewel of Georgia because there's you know so much right. uh, creativity going on down here, and so and the and the universities, uh, you know, pumping out talented people. So you, there's always someone interesting around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. And you and you're doing music as well, right? Yeah, I I I am. Um, I'm doing the singer songwriter a little bit, you know, and uh, doing the. The, that open mic stuff and which I'm not doing now. That's but, great. Yeah. And a podcast. And a podcast. This is my this is my favorite right here is the podcast. You know. I'm so excited to be able to do this with you. No, I'm honored that you would join me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um if you don't mind, I wanna ask you some questions about what you're doing. <laughs> sure. Yes, that's that's great. Awesome. What how's first of all, how's everything uh where you live right now? You're in what what part of Queens are you in? I'm in an area called Jackson Heights, Jackson. Um, which is within a ten block radius of here. There's something like 220 languages spoken. Wow! Uh, and it, uh, you know, I live in a um, sort of nine story sort of projects like building that was built in 1958, back when there was still sort of Roosevelt era concerns about 
providing housing for people, working uh, people. So like, so like the people that live in my building are like school teachers and there's a guy who drives the number seven train. There's a fireman. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's a lot of elderly people. And just the housing thing is severe in New York. As you know, the gentrification of New York has oh, been yeah. massive and, and has sped up enormously. Mm-hmm. I'm on the ninth floor and I see ambulances go by constantly during this pandemic on their way to um, Elmhurst hospital where bodies are piled up like cordwood and refrigerated trailers outside. Oh, and is. and you really see here the, the sort of inequality of late capitalism and Trump's economics because, you know, the majority of people out here, uh, especially in the surrounding area, Corona, uh-huh. are working class people and they have to show up for their jobs. So right. the, the, and there's a lot of people living in crowded situations mm-hmm. and apartments are expensive. So, the pandemic it really kind of tore through this community, but I, in a, in a strange way, I've been isolated from it. I'm on the ninth floor. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I wake up every day and, and work on a drawing or painting. Uh-huh. Um, I'm getting unemployment insurance. Um, okay. um, I'm, I'm, I just turned 65. I haven't had any health insurance. Uh, I have a torn meniscus. <laughs> What's <wait. laughs> riding my bike, bike to uh, and from work? Oh shit! Is that? Uh... That must be something on the leg. Yeah, it's like the um, sort of outside ligaments along the knee. And I, since you know, since we were young guys working at the Guggenheim, I'm now 65 with a 15 year old daughter. Uh huh. I, I, you know, I would say I've I've been pretty lucky. I mm-hmm. I have a gallery in Brooklyn that's shown my work over the years. And, yeah. What's uh, you know, and I'm working freelance at about five or six. No, actually, more like 12 different venues. Uh, so I work now, these days I work at the Guggenheim, sometimes the Noya, uh, let's see, the Drawing Center, New York Historical Society. Uh-huh. Uh, so I've got a whole list uh, of Zwerner Gallery. Is the, uh, uh, so, okay, the, the New York Historical Society, is that the same place where Scott Wixon worked for a while? Yeah, Scott worked there for years and he has retired now. Okay. It's right across the street from the... Uh, uh, Museum of Natural History on yeah, 77th yeah, and Central yeah. Park West. I did one job, and there it's good. Yeah, they keep me working, and I have a little. I get little weird jobs like taking care of the train garden in the lobby during during the fall and winter. Where he, <laughs> I go in at night when they're when they're closed and take apart um, the Lionel trains that need repaired, fix them, and put them back on the track. <laughs> I love that. So it's, yeah, it's a funny job, but it's kind of nice. And, it, and it's good because I can do it, you know, on the side with these other day jobs. And I, I've been riding my bike everywhere up until mm-hmm. the injury, which has been good. Yeah. And uh, I'd like to, um, I, I think the only thing keeping me in New York, however, is uh, is my daughter. I'm really, mm-hmm. I'm really ready to be done. She's almost 15. You can't, I can't even believe it. That is amazing. Yeah. I'm also proud that she's a New Yorker, proud that she's grown up kind of woke about mm-hmm. the way things are politically. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Um, you know, I think for her, this has all been, uh, I mean, there's kids who've lost family members and everything else here. It's been, a, it's been one of the hotspots of the world. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's been very scary. And I don't know what the art world and gallery world is going to look like from the point of view of quote art handling. Yeah. Um, that's my, one of my next uh, questions. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the things that's happened for me too Larry, as I've I've gotten involved in the Guggenheim Union right, movement, right. and I'm uh, I'm on the um, committee 
it meets with management to try and change things. But all that is now kind of completely out the window. We have we put up a Ram Cool House, a, a, a very elaborate exhibition that included, among other things, a giant tractor parked in front of the museum on Fifth Avenue. Uh, you know, I'm out there on Fifth Avenue stopping traffic while this giant farm machinery backs off of a flatbed and drives <laughs> up to the yeah. Guggenheim. I saw that. I saw pictures of that. That is, that yeah, is and it's kind of like a, yeah, it, it's it was kind of like a, a you know, Coolhouse is kind of like a great writer of manifestos. I mean, I love Delirious New York when it came out, and uh-huh. this is this is kind of like um, talking about things like a green economy and other stuff like that. We mm-hmm. had you know, a th- I put together a three D printed woolly mammoth skeleton, for example, on Ramp Six and <sighs> stuff like that. So it's it's kind of a, a bit of a a lot of a lot of didactics on the wall, and uh-huh. um, uh, not exactly a typical art show. But you know, no sooner was it open a few months than uh, the whole city shut down right around St. Patrick's Day for me. I was working uh-huh. at the Shed, another new facility, uh-huh. uh, art exhibition facility. You know, by this real estate developer who built Hudson Yards. Uh-huh. Uh, which is nothing but spectacular luxury housing for the very very wealthy and he's a major trump supporter so um you know but i mean this is sort of where capitalism has gone as it's Mm -hmm. consolidated its power and you know started out by giving a tax break to the wealthiest americans yeah insane and now we see where it leads us Mm -hmm. because we actually have this kind of crippled racist society where Mm -hmm. nobody looks out for each other anymore and i think the, the good news is everybody's out there a lot of young people especially, mm-hmm. and a lot of white people. And I think this is a, a real moment um, where perhaps we can go in a, in a better direction, a more compassionate direction. Right, That's right. what I hope yeah. for. I mean, I my mother used to be a delegate for the in Maryland for the Democratic ah. Party and go to the conventions and all that. Uh-huh. And um, I remember the... Uh, you know, when, when Obama first ran and I told her I was supporting Obama instead of Hillary and she was, she was upset. And I was like, you know, it's a new era, mom. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, um, and since then, I mean, I've, I've seen the Democratic Party just take advantage of working people and minority mm-hmm. people and, and not really, uh, yeah, deliver, deliver a better, uh, economy for working people. No. So I joined the Democratic Socialist Party. Ah. which I am now a member of, okay. and um, uh, hopefully um, better days are ahead. Yeah, but I think in the meantime, I'm, I'm just this guy who makes painting. Right, right. <laughs> that, that's beautiful. That, yeah, I think that, that you have your... your if, 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 if any of the uh, foul play does, does not take hold, then you have your finger on the pulse so that, you know, at least the Democratic Party will move a tiny little step to the left to make things, you know, because... We have to vote good people in and then also put pressure on them to do the right thing because it's once they're in that position, yeah, it's still not easy. Absolutely. I mean, I think we've at least more than half of the country has watched with horror as the White House has become a fascist bunker. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, people are just horrified by what's mm-hmm. going on. And, yeah. um, but anyway, not that's to get too far afield no. into politics. No, that's, that's just yeah. the backdrop for everything. Yeah, but you know, it is, it's, it's also like I'm old. Like I came, I came to New York. I want that story 19, too. Yeah, I came to New York in 1975, right out of high school. Okay. Okay. And and I and I got a scholarship to Cooper Union, which was 
is something that has also been eliminated. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were stopped, 18 or 17? Yeah, I was like an 18-year-old kid just uh-huh. out of high school. And I moved to 10th Street between uh, B and C, which was considered like a uh, completely reckless act of insanity. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, if you were white, you didn't, you didn't move east of Avenue A back then. But I was being raised by a single mom, and I mm-hmm. had no money. Right, right. And I got an apartment with a bathtub in the kitchen, and it was uh-huh. $135 a month. Mm-hmm. And, and the first day, I had like, um, I don't know, half a dozen... Puerto Rican kids pile into the lobby and stick a gun into my face. Oh shit! And um, and I resisted. I kicked the guy with the gun in the balls because uh-huh. oh, <laughs> I was because I was eighteen and thought I was invincible. Exactly, exactly. And, and slammed the door shut on him, and he shot through the glass door at me uh, as I ran down Amazing. the hallway to escape. Amazing. And then I, I I panicked. I ran up the stairs. I used a guy. I asked a guy who was I was kind of scared of, who had like uh-huh. jailhouse tattoos on his arm <laughs> and stuff, if I could use his if I could use his phone because uh-huh. I didn't even have a phone. I was right. so poor. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "You're not going to call call five O, are you?" And I'm like, "No, I'm going to call U-Haul and get that truck back and move out." Right. <laughs> and I embarrassed this guy in front of his homeboys, and I got to move. Uh-huh. He's like, uh-huh. "Oh man, you don't have to do that." And he reaches under his bed. Uh-huh. And he pulls out a sawed-off shotgun wrapped in silk, and he goes, 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, he had the solution, so, apparently. Yeah, I was like, I think I'll, I think I'll move. But, um, so did you, did you end up was, moving? Or, or? I did. I just, all I did was move a few blocks further west, back uh-huh. towards Astor Place area. Uh-huh. And, you know, back then, that was like a different world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no kidding. But, you know... Um, the thing about it was that um, the city had really kind of, at that moment, was was semi-abandoned in many neighborhoods like Tribeca, which are now multi-million dollar apartments, and um, Soho. I mean, I had a loft in Dumbo in mm-hmm. 1980, which yeah. is under the Manhattan Bridge and overlooking the, the East River, and it was, you know, affordable. Amazing. And Vito Conchi was my landlord. Who? Um Vito Acconci. Is that a, uh, a, a an actor or a singer? Who's that? He's a he's he's a performance artist who famously did a piece called Seedbed at Sonnabend Gallery, where he lived underneath of a, a plywood structure that you could walk on, oh. and it was it was miked with him. Um, I think probably masturbating. Oh, hilarious! <laughs> it was kind of famous, and okay. he, he became. He became just huge. Mm-hmm. He started out as a poet, and uh, but that was the thing. It was mm-hmm. like um, the city was very different. I mean, I I got here before Battery Park City was built, and mm-hmm. Philippe Petit had walked between the World Trade Centers on a tightrope. Wow. Yeah, and, you went at a um, time. Yeah, I w- I, so and then I moved and went to Chicago for a couple of years uh-huh. uh, for graduate school and left. I didn't finish graduate school. I had a, a a problem with the Chicago police. Uh-oh. Dude. <laughs> yeah. Do you care to go into Which it? Invo- <laughs> no. Well, I, I don't know. I, I mean, the, the short story is they, they were uh, in the north side of Chicago. It came out 10 years later that mm-hmm. Precinct House was a, was a hotbed for torturing suspects and oh. other stuff. And oh. they had, they had uh, started harassing my then girlfriend who was mm-hmm. walking down the street. And she, being from Brooklyn, flipped them off, and they got out and beat her up. And oh, then I went shit. to the precinct house 
and challenged the cop that did it to a fistfight because I was a hothead, uh-huh. 22-year-old kid, right. um, which led to them setting me up for a, for a, a marijuana bust. Oh. <laughs> oh. And, then, and then they had me, so they took me to an abandoned building and had my hands handcuffed behind my back and threatened to throw me down steps and do some other stuff. Oh, I got shit. off. Uh-huh. I got off because I was a white college kid, right? And um, it, ultimately, I spent a week in Cook County Jail, and it was all dismissed. But mm-hmm. I never forgot what it was like to uh, have a yeah. cell door shut and to see how they treated uh, my fellow prisoners. Right. Um, I watched them beat down a, a, one black guy who I was sort of friends with while I was there, oh, who wow. had uh, one leg amputated and stuff like that. So anyway, I never. Whatever, it just it so wasn't like I, I ne- the, needed yeah. insight. Yeah, right, right. So, but I saw the what the police were capable of, even for a nice white guy uh-huh. like right. me. So, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Shit, but um, so then I, I moved back to New York, mm-hmm. and um, and then we, when you and I met in the early nineties, yeah. Thomas Krenz had taken over the Guggenheim, and it was like uh, all of a sudden it was like this guy who had uh, this sort of corporate vision of how the art world could could operate and mm-hmm. he was kind of um i think with many sort of politically correct art world types regarded as a figure of scorn but mm-hmm. he did he did have ideas for like mass mocha and mm-hmm. dia beacon the the paradigm that is now sort of played out in a few places around mm-hmm. the country he started and i remember the big thing was that he would he would bring in uh major you know architects to kind of engage in a dialogue with Frank Lloyd Wright's masterpiece building. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden we were all, as you recall, we were doing massive projects, oh, some yeah. of them with huge architectural build outs. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was like, we did it all with a, with a fairly small crew and, mm-hmm. some, and some great people and got it done. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and, um, you know, I think for me, uh, uh, you know, because I continued to do my own work through all of this stuff and, uh, you know, I've had to work full time, but of Which course, is, yeah. always had a studio somewhere. I mean, there were a couple of big highlights for me that, that in the course of my career there that I feel um, just, you know, blessed to have had the chance to do. One thing was traveling to Europe and, and, ah. and heading up uh, installation crews. So, Did you get you to know, do that at, the, at Bill uh, Bell? <laughs> I think after you left, I got uh-huh. to, I got to work specifically on um, Felix Gonzalez tourist retrospective, which oh. went to Paris and mm-hmm. and writer and he had and he passed away before it even got to Paris. He was around mm-hmm. for New York, yeah. And I, um, I, you know, I love his work, and, and yeah. it was so sad because he was, you know, dying of age. He was a pretty young guy. Yeah, and it was just a, a terrible oh. experience in that mm-hmm. way. But in another way, I felt like privilege to be part of just trying to um, sure. help get his work out there. And then, you know, there was there was Rauschenberg, mm-hmm. who was no, still alive for his retrospective, yeah. and I got to travel with that all over to, oh, awesome. uh, you know, Cologne, Germany, and all over the world and set it up, and, Shit. you know, the Menil collection. That mm-hmm. was really great. Eldreth wow. Kelly. Wow. I got to meet him and, and work, um, you know, putting his paintings and tra- building travel frames for his yeah. paintings up in Spencertown. And, you know, these were things that, uh, I mean, these were some of my, like, especially uh, Rauschenberg and Kelly. I mean, uh, they were like, you know, heroes. Kind of, so yeah. it was really a great experience. And then I, 
I ultimately um, left the Guggenheim because I was offered a job with Richard Serra, which I did for about two uh-huh. years, and I was responsible for installation. Basically, I was responsible for getting in touch with the steel yards and the ships mm-hmm. as they came into port in in America and, and making arrangements to have them transported to to the installation site. So I was involved uh-huh. in installing stuff in Bilbao, uh-huh. Spain. Uh-huh. I was involved in installing the permanent stuff that's up at Dia Beacon. Uh-huh. Um, I did a couple of shows at Gagosian Gallery. And that went on right up until about 9-11. On 9-11, actually, I was supposed to be the day before, mm-hmm. uh, on, on the 10th, we were in uh, Camden, New Jersey, on the Delaware River, right across from Philadelphia, and it was like a two-day exhausting process getting these 70-ton curved plates onto barges and chained oh. down with, with these Union crews. It was a big job. Oh. And we came back, I don't know, after, after midnight or something, mm-hmm. into the city, and I was dropping um, Ernst Fuchs and another rigger, uh, his assistant, that, mm-hmm. that were the main... They've been working with Richard since the very beginning, uh-huh. and he was kind of the, you know, he was really the head engineer for the project. So okay. I, I was dropping them at the Hilton uh-huh. Hotel, which is right across from the World Trade Center. Oh shit! And the plan was the plan was that I was going to come pick them up the next morning at eight forty-five a.m. Right, which is just about the moment that the Would first it? plane hit the first tower, and I. For whatever reason, because it was rainy and everybody was exhausted, and uh-huh. I thought I was doing them a favor, mm-hmm. I said, "Listen, I'll." The, the plan was I was going to pick them up, and we were going, going to go to Greenpoint and watch like rigging equipment get loaded on a flatbed. And I uh-huh. was like, "I can just take care of that, guys. Why don't you like sleep in a little bit? Uh-huh. And that, that's just equipment. I can deal with that. You're, right. you know, you're dealing with the the." the footprint of the sculptures inside the space. That's right. the real thing. Uh-huh. Let me take care of that. So then, you know, the rest is history. I woke up the next morning and saw, you know, the, the World Trade Center on fire. I didn't understand how serious it was. But, right. I, right. you know, I wound up staying in Brooklyn and, and trying to deal with stuff out there, like mm-hmm. the truck driver who was terrified and went to leave and <laughs> saw one of the towers go down. Uh, uh, and... Um, I went and withdrew all my money from my bank account. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> I thought it was the end of Western civilization. Right. Right. Well, that's a. And now, and now we're at another point where it seems uh, mm-hmm. equally dire. Right. You know, here in right. New York, and uh, wow. um, yeah, it's another thing. But yeah, no, that was a great experience. Worked for him, and after that, I just started freelancing. At because uh, things really kind of stopped after nine eleven for a while. Uh, and then ultimately I, I was exhausted by the job and, um, started doing something else. So I worked mm-hmm. up at, um, the Hudson river museum in Yonkers, okay. which was great. And I sort of rebuilt their shop and did some things uh-huh. there and worked there for a few years. And that was a good Beautiful. job for a young father. Cause mm-hmm. my daughter was growing up and, mm-hmm. you know, I needed a real steady thing. And, mm-hmm. um, so I did that for a few years and, Beautiful. I guess since then I've just been um I've been able to put together um enough freelance jobs to to oh, yeah. you know oh, no, make a yeah. living but I think, I think now it's going to change. So yeah, something's going to change again. You were, yeah. You were sound like you were uh, properly uh hooked up. But uh yeah. And I, yeah. <laughs> I uh 
Yeah, some, but yeah, something is gonna change. I don't. I mean, it'll, it'll get it'll get better eventually. But well, what what's your? Uh, tell me a little bit about the um, Robert Henry Contemporary Gallery. Well, Robert you. was yeah. Robert Robert and Henry have have started this gallery, and they um, the first time Robert showed my work was at a place called Walden Gallery, which was on just off of Houston Street, I think on Essex Street, and it was like a little storefront. And the first uh, work I was doing that started getting some recognition, and um, I was still working for Richard Serra then, and I was okay. doing these pieces where I found images of, um, I actually found it in Bilbao at a, at a bookstall along the river um, uh -huh. and paid like 50 cents for it, and it it. It was a it was an elementary school manual printed in 1948 by Franco's Falangista Party, uh -huh. and the and the illustrations were absolutely beautiful. They looked like they could have been the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts of America, but uh -huh. they were actually for something akin to the Spanish Hitler Youth. Oh my God! Okay. Uh, and they tended to be these sort of 1930s style beautiful drawings. You've probably seen images of some of my work. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. my whole thing about it was I would I would. They, they were they were absolutely beautiful sort of childhood illustrations, little stout fascist boys and stuff. So uh -huh. I would blow these things up with a projector uh -huh. in an architectural space. Uh -huh. uh, so I take this little image that was three inches high and horizontal in a book and and verticalize it and blow it up eighteen feet high. Uh -huh. um, and and then I would start building in the black areas of the illustration with nails or steel push pins. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And they were pretty powerful. And I had some very uh -huh. strong ideas about what formally art should be. And I was sort of rejecting the notion of, of a painting that um, was something to be sold and hung above your couch. And I was right. trying to do something that was super labor intensive, uh -huh. was temporary, like a, like a Tibetan sand painting or something. Mm -hmm. And um, that just got removed, and the wall got skim coated oh. when it was all done. Yeah. So they weren't um, saleable items, really. Right. <laughs> no. They, yeah, that's uh, many of them. I, for example, I, many of them. Uh, I did one in in uh, State University at Albany uh, called Stone's Throw because it was in an Edward Durrell stone building, and uh -huh. he designed he designed Lincoln Center. So I, I did this piece at the top of the stairs, and it was again one of these fascist boys, and it was. Mm -hmm. It was like 18 feet high, uh -huh. and I had a scissor lift and a crew of five people, oh, that's uh, awesome. and it took us it took us like 10 days to execute it. Uh -huh. So that's pretty that's typical pretty of what that group of work was like. Yeah. So do, uh, do some of your installations exist? Are they are they permanent? Like like uh... there's there's one or two that are left. I did one thing up at um, uh, Hudson Valley Community College in, in the library that was made out of. Uh, metal, um, how would you describe them, like sign painter blanks, and and painted an image on those. There's also uh, one in, in a private collector's home in Massachusetts. But okay. in general, no, they all got taken down. I did one at the Brooklyn Museum. Uh -huh. I did a huge one at Rice University. And, and in general, they were just, uh, I look back at it now, and it was like an insane amount mm -hmm. of labor. And yeah. um, I did one at the Bronx Museum. Uh -huh. Anyway, after I did all of that work for a yes. number of oh, yeah, years, yeah. and then my yeah, and then my daughter was born, and mm -hmm. then I was like, I have to find another way to work. I can't keep right 
doing these massive projects. And I was also nearing the end of, I felt like I had, I did, I did actual drawings of some of this stuff too, mm-hmm. but I felt like I had taken this, this image from, you know, European fascism and I had gone as far as I could go with right. it. I really read a lot of Walter Benjamin and got deep into it. And, right, and, right. uh, and then I was like, I actually stopped to breathe for a minute. And, um, and then I was like, in, in some funny way, it came back around to, do you think you could even just make a painting anymore? Do you mm. think you could make a painting that you like anymore? Uh-huh. <laughs> and the answer, the answer initially was no. I, uh-huh. It actually was a very humbling experience. I uh-huh. tried to make a painting that was like 24 by 36, abstract uh-huh. painting, right. like in that range. That was the kind of work I was doing. And it took me a long time to do. It took mm. a couple of years before I did a piece that... Um, <laughs> that I found um, right. acceptable. <laughs> well, it's good you kept at it because, yeah, it, all you were was rusty, and that's a painful experience to, I think, to change gears. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, but, but it, it was, um, I, I realized that yeah. it was back to the, the, the first love I ever had, which was, was painting. Ah. I mean, I could still remember... I can still remember thinking about like Cezanne and, the, mm-hmm. and seeing the bathers in Philadelphia and yeah. this idea that that you didn't need to. It wasn't really about what the thing looked like visually. It was about the temperament of the person making it and mm-hmm. and, uh, and the belief and in what you were doing and the sincerity of of intent. So all of that sort of played into the work. Right. And you know, I've been a I don't know a careful reader of like. James Joyce and others and yeah. Samuel Beckett and and um and I always I always loved the idea that a painting was and this is kind of where I am today mm-hmm. like a painting is a is a physical thing mm-hmm. but it's also something else so like, I have this great quote from Color, Samuel Taylor Coleridge who's you know was addicted to opium and a great romantic poet but he wrote this great little line that I that I've always loved and he said Painting is the intermediate somewhat between a thought and a thing. Hey. And that's, I think, what's so great about painting. It's like you have, like, this glimpse of something you're going to do, right? And yeah. you start doing it. But then then the material takes over and other things come into play and it becomes a journey. So I never know what these mm-hmm. new works exactly are going to look like yeah. completely. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, and that's the, the beauty of it and the excitement of it. No, I like what you're describing I, I you also make me want to uh catch, to do some reading too because uh you know i'm not as uh up to speed on some of my authors as maybe as <laughs> some of the rest of well, you it, it doesn't even matter in, mm-hmm. in a way but it, whatever it is that you bring to the making of something mm-hmm. is um yeah as long as it, it comes from you starting point yeah exactly yeah yeah so and then, I mean, I mean, there are people like, you know, who, you know, they come in with a T-square and a ruler and they know, they know exactly what they want and they accept no compromise and they, they execute it. Mm-hmm. But I never know exactly what it's going to look like. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I'm not saying one's better than the other. It, mm-hmm. it, it's not. But for me, it, it sort of became something where, I mean, I did this work that was also very meditative after stopping those installation pieces where I was almost doing a, a kind of dot and line overall fields kind of painting. And I, and I did that for several years and it's not like I suddenly made a jump cause I consciously wanted to change what I was doing it, but it was gradual. You know, I looked one day and like, Oh, this is 
turning into something else. And yeah. now I'm almost into this. I look at my work now and I feel like I, I don't even know who's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it feels like, uh, like I'm like, well, wait, you're, you're mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, you're doing this thing that almost at times resembles abstract expressionism, mm-hmm. like why or whatever. Right, but right, right. I kind of have decided, especially at this point in my life to just, just keep working and let mm-hmm. the work tell you where to go. Yeah. I like what you're saying. Yeah. Is, are these, are, are some of your latest ones, the, uh, the, the the black ink and gouache on paper is it? Yeah, that's kind of where I've been working now. Um, I have a, a studio still separate from where I live, but I because of the pandemic, right. I, I also have my drawing file in my apartment, and I can I can just put down um, construction paper on the floor mm-hmm. and, and work in the studio. It's big enough to do that, uh, and they're pretty big. They're like forty by sixty. Okay. Uh, Panels. Some of them are double panels, forty by sixty. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it's just this. Uh, you know. I mean, I used to kind of. Uh, I, I mean, another big part of my story is. Um, you know, I, I, I'm clean and sober twenty eight years now. Yeah. So good job. I, I laughingly, I laughingly call what I do radical sobriety. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> I used to have, I used to have this idea that, like many of the abstract expressionists did. Right. Pollock and others that you you could get um, you could get drunk and paint, and right, and I don't right. and I don't disavow that right. in general or have any moral position mm-hmm. on that whatsoever. Yeah. You know there was there was this Arthur Rambeau idea of like systematic derangement of the senses will lead to great yeah art, and and I think <laughs> for him it did yeah yeah. Um, but I I think. Um, Ultimately, I, I I wanted to live, so right. so I got sober. But <laughs> first it, things it, it's first. Funny how, yeah. But it's funny how, like, um, in a way, that sobriety can take you to a place that's. Um, what am I trying to say? It's almost uh, you can get so intense about what you're doing that it, it it's as powerful as derangement of the senses, uh-huh. like focusing of the senses. Yeah. But I do. But I am still doing this thing where I. Um, you know, I take like uh, small sign painters brushes and I tape it to a, a, a little stick or whatever, mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm using um, I'm using um, India ink, and so I am doing this kind of classical like let the let the drawing tell you where it, it wants mm-hmm. to go. It's almost like a unconscious surrealist sure, like method. A, but then I like then I board. cut back into them. Uh-huh. Then I go back into them. Often I'll take a um, a blade and I'll, and I'll work back into them and cut out sections and where, where I follow where the brush rent went. And somehow when you're coming uh-huh. back the second time, uh-huh. uh, and composing that way, um, it gets into this whole thing about the velocity of the mark and mm-hmm. how you're, how you're now working with that. And it creates these other things that are really interesting. So there's, I think there's a, there's a, like a range of speeds that go on in the work or a range of approaches now. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And, and that's become interesting to me. Okay. So. Yeah, I'm looking at this one right now called uh, Detention Center Blues. Oh, yeah. And it's, so you've cut, you cut, some of that's cut out sections or? Is yeah. It? Yeah, a lot of the forms that are, are, the, are the blocks of color or mm-hmm. different things that you see are because I've gone back in and. And followed some of the original drawing, mm-hmm. and sometimes I'll just follow that line, but I don't follow it slavishly. I let the work sort of yeah 
dictate where it wants to go. But a lot of times, I find that you can come back into it with a with a with a another color underneath, and it and it sort of starts to pop and become um, dimensional. Yeah, I like it. That yeah, I'm I'm impressed by. I'm fascinated by that. That's nice. Yeah, Yeah. and you know, it's like you know, all of us have this. uh, If you if you're a painter long enough, you develop this uh, range of of things you do, Mm -hmm. and 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 you have habits and you have opinions and you have acquired taste and mm-hmm. all those things but ultimately i think you have to shake those things up a bit right and uh and try and get to something that you don't know about yourself mm-hmm. what is it valerie said it's it's what i contain of the unknown that makes me myself okay and i've always been i've always been inspired by that kind of that that, that surrealist yeah. attitude you know where they did cut up poetry and mm-hmm. they did exquisite corpse drawings and and then you know those guys all came fleeing the Nazis, and they were they were in New York in the forties. Right, know, a lot, right. A lot of those poets and artists, and then they had a huge impact on the abstract expressionists mm-hmm. in terms of understanding a way to um, move beyond mm-hmm. where they were as a painter into something else. And look at what happened. You have like Rothko, who was doing this kind of biomorphic surrealist watercolors, and then. Yeah. And then did this sort of totally transcendent thing that I am still amazed at the mm-hmm. scale of it and the yeah. you know, <laughs> the beauty of it. And same with Pollock, he was mm-hmm. doing this kind of Jungian, sort of tur- tortured, almost psychological notebook drawings, and mm-hmm. then found his way to that beautiful flowing thing he did, like Autumn Rhythm and the Met. Mm-hmm. Or, or all of them, all all of those guys had a, had a had a moment where they understood. Um, the surrealist in, yeah, interest you, in the unconscious. What it just occurred to me while you, while you were talking is it's kind of trained us all how to think, because they're like going, well, the way I interpret it is like, let's break out from what I might just do naturally or mundanely, uh, put my, make myself uh, vulnerable or confused, and then I, the, to, so that something new is, there's, there's a window for something new to come in. <laughs> Think, absolutely yeah. absolutely and and you know it's also this this way to move forward past this idea of um the kind of heroic romantic artist is there mm-hmm. another way and i think that still plays out today i think <sighs> you know it, yep. in contemporary art there's a lot of interest in sort of the horizontal and the abject and the you know and you know mm-hmm. the, the the discarded and all of that kind of thinking has come into play and i think it's 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 very wide open but i don't know i mean i for me it's like i'm gonna do what i do anyway because i mean what else are you gonna do mm-hmm. like buy stuff right 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 exactly <laughs> you, know I mean? you like, can only buy so much you, look, you can only, yeah. right you look around at the world and it's like um you know i feel lucky to have, have been in new york in the years that i was here and, right. and and i'm still still here and i'm still working and i still um I hope that these these drawings have some energy and some validity. And sure, sure. For me, they're still interesting, so I'm going to do that till they have the last piece of paper run out, and maybe then art supply stores will be open again. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's yeah. You got to do it right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, uh, that's that's kind of where I am today. So I'm trying to just hang on a few more years here in the city, and and uh, and then I think I. You know, I think when my daughter's old enough, I think I want to 
if I'm still here, I think I want to just leave. Uh huh. Certainly New York and maybe even the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay. Um, so we'll see how that all goes. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> still, a, still a few last adventures ahead. Right, right. I hear um, you. Yeah. That... Uh, we were lucky to have been uh, at the Guggenheim when we were and met great people like you and Except, others. Thank who, you. Uh, yeah. I would, you know, uh, it's like a really interesting time. I did want to mention that. It was, it was, I'm fond of that time. I mean, because it, uh, it was a only officially lived there for five years, but you know, though I came back and forth for another five. But you guys were the core introduction to the art handling world in in New York. It was it was that core group in the grotto, Joe Guy and and you, and I guess yeah. I guess also uh, Dennis. But just like yeah, and Dennis, and 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 there were others, but that was the core core group I remember for when I started you know I, I came in right after the, the the tower went up right after the, it reopened right me too mm-hmm. and there were so many good artists who came through to work as art handlers too and we, mm-hmm. we all got to meet so many good people and also the, the Guggenheim was making a shift from being all under James Johnson Sweeney a kind of smaller more traditional institution there mm-hmm. were exceptions like they did a Joseph Boys retrospective before we got there Okay. But suddenly we were doing a 90-foot column tower <laughs> in the center of the Guggenheim, mm-hmm. and it almost didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it almost didn't happen. I mean, I remember uh, yeah. we had been up all night, and the, the, we had these four grip hoists to take this column vertically up into the ceiling as we ran the cabling system up through mm-hmm. it, and then the grip hoists were maxed out, and the thing was like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Oh, crap. It, it, it couldn't. It couldn't seat on the on the plywood disc mm-hmm. that it needed to seat on. That was attached to the floor, mm-hmm. and um, that was six o'clock in the morning on the day of the opening. <laughs> and That's and people were, had been up all night, including me. And I remember mm-hmm. that I asked permission. You could never do it now at the Guggenheim because the bureaucracy is so much right. different. Oh crap! But I remember sitting there cross-legged and going through two sawzall blades mm-hmm. and cutting off, cutting an eight inch circle off of the bottom of it. Ah, so you're the one that cut it off, cut it off. And I asked permission and I would never do it today because you'd be sticking your neck out too much. You know uh-huh. what I mean? You'd have to wait for some conservator or so. And not that I don't have respect for conservators, but it was just a different right. kind of thing. Everyone and, has to, um, anyway, yeah. we cut it off mm-hmm. and it seeded, but mm-hmm. there were so many other, as you know, you worked on the, Russian show and others yeah. where there was just it was just we did such an enormous amount with mm-hmm. so few people and you yeah. know we had I mean amazing genius well, architects I, like Zaha exactly. Hadid so, yeah so. yeah I think of it as I think well I think of it as a lot of people but we did put a lot of hours in so I guess comparatively you know I worked a lot of those eight to midnight days and yeah, so, I mean it's a so different guess, generation of people now, yeah. and there and we don't work those kind of hours in general. A few people do, right, right. Uh, but the the crew size has tripled. Wow, and the, and the level of bureaucracy into who can touch what and all that is oh, like no, amazing. Uh, it's it's filled out into a whole a whole mm-hmm. other thing, and and I think that's ultimately probably for the good. Mm-hmm. But it costs. Um, it takes a lot more people and costs mm-hmm. a lot more money to do what we were doing. Right. Oh. But I feel really lucky. Yeah, I feel. Yeah, I definitely been feel. around. 
Yeah. Yeah, if you're lucky too. That was a it was a it was a great time to be there and to you know get put on the red uh, jumpsuit and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about the red jumpsuit. That's right. Yeah. No, I have I pretty that. clear memories of that. Everyone would some complained some. Um, I may have complained, but I wasn't going to complain too much. I was happy to have that job. But yeah, and then people would I mean, fashion them. There was the a lot that. You know, they were hot as hell, too. They were all mm-hmm. 100% polyester. Yeah. And I did, you and, know. And I remember going out over the over the fountain and, mm-hmm. and on a forklift mm-hmm. with a platform with a platform C-clamp to the forks uh-huh. and rigging um, and rigging this Rebecca horn piece with the uh-huh. two plexi Rebecca. things dripping, this sort of Duchampian breath dripping milk into the fountain below. Oh, my God. And... Like now, they don't even allow uh, forklifts on the ramps of the Guggenheim because it turns out that you know that was not good for the building. Oh, not yet. We were there for the first renovation, which was kind of like a a, a, let's just get it done quick job. But then they did a Schiami renovation that was much more thorough and much more scientific. So Uh, the building is actually all the things that happened when we were there, like water running down the ramps and stuff on cold days. From condensation, those problems have have been solved. Doesn't happen anymore. So Beautiful. it's um, but those were um, and and you know, times. for me too, as like a young person, I got to travel all over Europe and mm-hmm. stuff as a courier and stuff. So uh, it was it was a great experience. Well, maybe I should have hung around, but you were you were. <laughs> I don't. Huh? I don't know. Maybe I should have moved back. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Because if I I did I had to do crappy jobs for six years. Or go back to New York, and and try to get. Yeah. So I, it was it was a struggle, you know. If I want if I'd wanted to work in a restaurant or a, you know, a, a coffee shop, then it would have been fine. But I did I had done that, you know, in my early twenties. Right. And didn't want to do that anymore. Well, I think it's good you kept your focus and you stayed uh, stayed in the art museum yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. That was really a good good move on your part. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I, pu- I pulled it off. You know, <laughs> and it's it's a good deal because they're you know they're they're uh, we may be furloughed and we're the university's talking about opening back up in a in a measured way, set measured yeah. in a safe way. But um, I've got I've been lucky enough to have insurance and 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 and, and you know sick leave and. And so on, you know. So that's that's a big deal that I didn't realize oh, sure. was such a big deal until now, you know. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, and you know, university museums have, you know, it's just like you get guys, you guys get crowds for some things, but it's not like the kind of logistical problems that the Museum of Modern Art or the Guggenheim or the Met are going to have to deal with. No. I mean. No, I can't imagine. I mean, when you think about the Guggenheim and the basement there where we all worked, it was like a mm-hmm. submarine. Yeah, yeah. How are they going to put? How are they going to put fifty people down there during right. changeovers? Masks or not? Um, you know, yeah. It, low yeah. ceilings. You know, uh, uh, tight little hallways. Yeah, and nice. I mean, I think in terms of crowd control, the Guggenheim will be one of the will be better than some because it has the nice wide ramps and so on. Oh yeah, I can go up one but, way and down the other, and not or down. Right, but they yeah. won't be able to let they won't be able to let just like the kind of volume of visitors in there mm-hmm. that they've done before. And mm-hmm. MoMA is like a, an airport. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the new a lot less people. Uh huh. 
Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen the newest version of Momo, but um, it's come a long way. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I sound very old, but I can remember when Guernica was in New York still and there were no barriers and it was sort of great carpet and going to Momo. Wait, was who was in New York? A library. Who? Picasso's Granica used to be oh. in New York. Oh, okay. And, yeah. And then Tony Tony Shafrazi famously spray painted on it, and Uh-oh. ultimately it was given back to Spain after Franco died. Hmm. Um, but uh, you know, it's like it was a whole different world. I mean, museums were much more like a library or a place of right. study, and, and now they're like a. Um, like a tourist destination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying it's a different, it's a right. different thing. It's very different. Yeah, and Scott talked about that a little bit, um, and uh, uh, and then one of Scott's oh, friends contacted me. That the guy that worked with him before, like 20 years before Krenz or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Scott, you know, so, so I, I'm getting some, I'm getting like. Interested in in going into the history of it, you know. So, uh, yeah, we'll see, yeah, see where this goes. Well, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, come a long way. I mean, as Scott was around as a young man and showing his work in the, in the Guggenheim in the first, it, I think Exxon sponsored the yeah, show of young painters. Yeah, he had two paintings in that show. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he's amazing. got something in the collection. <laughs> so, God is amazing. Yeah. But he made it, you know, he made it to retirement and mm-hmm. um, seems to be happy and doing well. I still see his posts on Instagram. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think Joe and Lisette are doing well. Uh, yeah, I'm not yeah. not in touch with them any, anymore, but, um, you know, it sounds like they've, they have they went to New Orleans and thrived, and now they're trying yeah. something different. Yeah, they're in Texas now. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So, yeah, they're yeah. moving and grooving, moving and shaking. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. So people, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna just touch base with a lot of different people and find out where where they are now and what's up. You know, it's, uh, what hey, hey uh, what is the uh, studio museum in Harlem? Oh yeah, that's another. Um, it, it's been around a, a long time, but they're on 125th Street, and they they have a, a an older building. They're right across the street from the state office building. Um, in the middle of the block, and they do, uh, I, I think their big thing is, I mean, Selma Golden is the director there, and she's like, you know, helping the Obamas check out paintings for the White House, and oh, wow. she's, a super, she's a superstar, mm-hmm. and um, they, she's very been very instrumental in, in putting young artists in their studio program, many uh-huh. of whom have gone on to have big careers, and and she's also been instrumental in, in helping um young curators uh giving them jobs at the studio museum and they have a handful of art handlers i've installed work there uh-huh. um the thing is that they're um they're building a new building so they're shut down so that's another venue that is gone for me oh, that you, oh, um, okay. there's, there's a tiny bit of work every now and then in their and one of their storage spaces but mm-hmm. that's another um so yeah things are things are going to be tight i mean i'm willing to go do other work. I don't sure. necessarily need to uh, well, just do art handling. Right, we'll right. That's well. What, that's one good good thing about New York City is there's well, as long as some somebody, lots of jobs. Yeah, there's jobs. There's always somebody that needs something. Yeah. Like what I got the I I learned that 
uh, from talking to Chris that the the construction is happening all over the place. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm kind of reaching the point where I'm I'm sort of too old to do certain things mm-hmm. too. But um, you know, I'd like to stay and keep keep doing art handling and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you'll be able. To you know, do. I'm I'm at retirement age. I, I just yeah. need to go a couple more years. Yeah. Oh, you look pretty. You look pretty years. young in in the uh, in the Instagram photos, so. though. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe that's maybe huh. that's one of the upsides of, of sobriety too. Yeah. Oh, it makes a difference. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I um, <coughs> I uh, you're a full uh, ten years older than me. So yeah. I I did notice, like I took a, I'm not. I still uh, drink a beer uh, on occasion, yeah. but uh, I did a period partly when I was working at the Guggenheim and other jobs where I was not drinking at all. And you, yeah, I didn't. I I took note of the fact that I was, I I felt smarter, stronger, and more energetic, and you know I didn't get aggravated as easily. You know I yeah. slept well. You know, all that is real. Yeah, it all helps. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, again, for me, it was just a matter of survival, too, and I don't have any moral position on anybody. Sure, no, I hear you. Yeah, and, yeah, and, 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 you know, uh, it worked for me, and I had a lot of fun with it. It worked till it didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, you know. No, I, I respect I mean, I, I got saying. much more focused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just got much more focused in the studio, and mm-hmm. I think it's made me a better dad and everything else. I mean, whatever for me, sure, it, it sure. was it was a needed change, and it's and it's been good. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what the heck? Yeah, no, I appreciate what you're saying. I, I have I'm not I got I got I've lim- I have a if I may limited perspective on. <laughs> on that issue, you know. <laughs> um, well, I think about people now during the pandemic who are like, you know, ordering pot in massive amounts, like pot sales have gone way up and stuff like that. And wait, so what? What sales? It, pot the sale of, of weed. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and I'm just like, uh, I'm I'm kind of like glad that I'm clear-headed because there's so much shit going on every day. With right. This, idiot in office right 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 <laughs> as soon as you turn around oh well 10 environmental laws got struck down while we were mm-hmm. worrying about his his uh you know relationship with the latest hooker or whatever i know did. yeah yeah he's 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 crazy he's good at this like hey look over here i'm an asshole and then and then they go and do some crazy shit it's not yeah he's really a master of deception but, yeah and, and and the reason why i think all of these Republicans are so cowardly, and mm-hmm. half the country is so enamored with them. It's because um, he's getting their their kind of racist right wing agenda mm-hmm. uh, going with steroid like mm-hmm. speed, including he's including packing the federal courts with unqualified right wing mm-hmm. jackasses. Yeah, and he validates the feelings of um, really uh, selfish, self centered, angry people you know yeah and you know what i like i don't get it's like there's people like in i'm not going to name states but mm-hmm. um yeah. they've got they've got two they've got two suv suvs they've got a membership to the country club all mm-hmm. of their kids are in college mm-hmm. uh, they don't really want for anything but they're they're so angry that some poor black woman mm-hmm. is getting 
social security social assistance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> you know, it costs it costs seventy thousand dollars a year to incarcerate someone. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I really think it's like, yeah, it'll never happen. But I actually think it's worth considering, like, uh, just paying people a living wage, whether they work or not. Right. There's like a lot because of people end up in to, jail. You don't have to imprison them. Right. They end yeah. up in jail partly because they don't have a job. They don't have any money. It, 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 for seventy thousand dollars, I could live quite comfortably, you know, here in Georgia. You know. Exactly. And and I mean, I, I I've turned into I have to say I've turned into Mitch McConnell's worst nightmare because <laughs> a a I'm a democratic socialist. Mm-hmm. B uh, I'm getting more on unemployment than I would get working. And C I never want to go back to work again. I just <laughs> work at the studio every day. Jeez. <laughs> Ah, hilarious. Well, I hate to say it, but no. I, I love just getting paid mm-hmm. to, to make drawings every day mm-hmm. so while it lasts. Yeah. But, all, but in, all, in all seriousness, though, I mean, I really do uh, see this in all this darkness and mm-hmm. all this um, fear and all this hatred and everything that's playing out. I still see tremendous hope because I think... Yes, thank I, you for you that. Know, we haven't seen, yeah, we haven't seen this kind of um, commitment to change since the '60s. Right. I mean, right. I, I'm really, I'm really proud of of everyone, exactly, in the white and the black community who are yeah. getting out there and demanding change. Yeah, yeah. And that, hopefully, we'll. Um, I mean, you know, again, like the, the, the basic things, like. Um, Immunity for cops when they do the shit and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I forget what the term is. It's a specific term. Yeah, yeah. I know These things mean. can be done. These things can be done. But then in addition to fixing that problem, you know, what about the other issues of, like, environmental justice and mm-hmm. housing? And, yeah, and, fix the and, causes. Yeah. You know, I'm reading a, a, a great book called The Golden Gulag. Um, the Golden Gulag? And it, yeah, and it deals with... Um, it deals with. Uh, Wait, oh James, can you hold on one second? I have to change a. I have to change a chord. I have to plug my. So give me one okay. one second. Sure. Okay. Hey, technical difficulties. Nobody's perfect. I had to ask James to call me back the next morning. Hi, Larry. Good howdy, morning. howdy. Thanks for calling back, James. <laughs> yeah, no problem. How are you? Good, good. But yeah, so we were talking about. You were telling me about uh, the organization Critical Resistance, and then also that book uh, Golden Gulag. So yeah, I sent you a picture, and I can send you a link. But um, I mean, I was oh, saying that I thought it was a really good analysis of mm-hmm. how California got to be um, a racist police state. To oversimplify mm-hmm. it, but right, right, um, and 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 what steps could be taken to um, change that? Mm-hmm. So they're doing good work out there in Oakland and LA, but they have a branch in New York City. Okay, and um. You know, I was just trying to say that as somebody who's, I mean, I haven't gone out and protested out of, right. quite frankly, out of fear sure, sure. of getting of getting arrested or sick. Right, um, right. <laughs> but I tried to think of what other ways somebody, you know, who's like a 65-year-old dad might be able to contribute. Mm-hmm. And that, that's one of them for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think the idea of, like, people looking for uh, organizations that are, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of lists on Instagram, but um, that was one I chose, Critical Resistance. Okay. Well, I'm going to check it out. I think they do good work. Yeah. Yeah. 
So what else? So the golden um, gulag just it uh, also describes the uh, uh, the how how the for profit prisons came about or what what she what she points out uh, in that book that's an interesting detail. She says that the for profit prisons, while they are there was some increase in them in California, and that was not the driving force behind the prisons. It really started with uh, I mean you can go back earlier. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just it, I think it really took off under Ronald Reagan, and there was a kind of consolidation of white power and mm-hmm. white wealth, and a denigration of union movements, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's right. uh, uh, denigration of, of social programs that helped the poor, mm-hmm. and um, and then everyone got sold on 401ks nationwide too. Uh, uh, so unions and other organizations that used to have pensions and livable wage and all that gradually moved away. And then voters in California themselves became, uh, they thought, meaner and leaner. In other words, like there wasn't going to be government intervention to, to save um, communities through um, social welfare programs. I but see. actually really what they did was just become meaner and, and not leaner because there was plenty of corruption and money around for mm-hmm. uh white-owned businesses and, and, and politicians and so on. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I'm always simplifying all of this. Yeah, yeah. She goes into, into great detail, but um, it's just an interesting, to me okay. it's an interesting book because it shows, like, I mean, California is the fifth largest economy in the world. Right, And right. it shows, um, I mean, other states have uh, different but, but parallel stories. I mean, I think the, the country in, in general moved towards this, like, Law and order, three strikes, you're out. Mm-hmm. And, and and after 9-11, the militarization of the police. So um, yeah. and not to get too deep into all this, but it's something I think everybody's kind of Just trying to understand and sure. educate themselves and wrestle with. Sure, sure. I'll get um, that book. Yeah. Get, um, yeah, because I, I, cause I... Well, I'm just going to go a little bit, say this a little I have one Facebook friend that just goes nuts about blaming everything on CNN and arguing on, on behalf of Fox News being a good so- news source. And and it's just that, I don't know, that makes me crazy. And that's not, it's, it's an oversimplification, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other thing that, um, that that's going on in this country, too, is all of the local newspapers that have existed. Right, uh, are now owned by across larger. Across the country. Mm-hmm. Right. They're, they're bought out. There's two companies in particular that um, do these um, predatory loans. They buy these papers and uh-huh. lay off the staff and bleed them dry. Okay. So then in a lot of parts of the country, there are what is called news deserts where uh-huh. there's, you know, like so local governments can come in and vote, vote themselves a huge raise or you know, do whatever because right. there's no local reporting. And these are being bought out by these, um, you know, gigantic companies whose only goal is to bleed these people dry. And the same thing with housing. I mean, so these are bigger issues than the police, too. These are economic justice issues. Yeah, because they're controlling that knowledge or limiting knowledge. Right. So that it allows, I mean, Fox News has just been, you know, Roger Ailes is a certain kind of evil Mm -hmm. genius, right? Right. But he's, he's managed to get... The majority of especially older Americans mm-hmm. in the country, and a lot, certainly a lot in the South, yeah. to to um, you know this this 
this idea of a deep state and all that. Is right. Just, and, 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 uh, and like it's a form of media, Fox, quote unquote, news. And they're the ones yelling that you can't trust the media. They're blaming the media. And, and people that are buying that are not catching on that they're listening to media. You know, they're right. taking in somebody's freaking opinion, you know, over and over. Right. And then they go, Absolutely. Yeah, and they just run around. It's just shameful. They I, don't, I, don't know, like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, th- that's a whole other thing that's going on in the country. And I think that's, I mean, I don't really know if, honestly, if 40% of the country is really okay with Trump. I mean, the election was, right. he certainly got a lot of, uh, white suburban mm-hmm. southern votes like right. outside of Atlanta and places right. like that and, and in the Rust Belt yeah. that because of the electoral college system which is a holdover from slavery right. really right. Mm-hmm. Uh, is still allowed to continue functioning in this country and now you've got the Republicans they're spending millions of dollars to uh, throw shade on mail-in ballots at mm-hmm. a time when people can die waiting online to vote right, it's a joke right. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's so um, obvious. It's yeah, absurd. And, and it's equally obvious that their their fear is that if if young people and brown and black citizens mm-hmm. really get out energized and vote like they did for Barack Obama, mm-hmm. they're going to all be swept out of office. Exactly. And hopefully that will come true. That we yeah. will have a democratically controlled Senate and president and House, and then right. maybe we could start to get a few things done that exactly. need, sorely need to get done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A, but, you know, yeah, um, I do, in spite of all the suffering and all the death and everything that's going on, right? Uh, and all the problems that aren't getting talked about, I still feel like this is a real watershed moment mm-hmm. in this country's history. Eyes are opening, and I, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's important to remember, in spite of... I mean, the whole culture of the Internet of being snarky about somebody's not liberal enough or not right. Right, enough. right, right. <laughs> and they go back and forth and they mm-hmm. argue, and it's like, that that stuff is not news, it's gossip. Yeah, that's right, and it's a waste of time and energy. Yeah. Yeah, but I do think the majority of people in this country, of all races, are basically good people who mm-hmm. want fairness. Right. And right. want an even playing field. Now, there's a lot of, again, corporate pressure and money to make sure that mm-hmm. never happens right so they're getting yeah it's they're going to be interesting they get they're basically out different sources are intentionally trying to wind people up and they can study that through social media like who they can target to focus on to get them excited and you know go nuts about a certain falsehood or exaggerated truth exactly i mean even if you take like a simple a very specific issue like qualified immunity for the police, right? right. Which uh-huh. makes it nearly impossible, even if there's video footage mm-hmm. of the most blatant abuse and murders. You know, there, there's something like right now before the stacked right-wing Supreme Court, mm-hmm. there's there's something like eight or nine cases of this. You know, ridiculous stuff like a 10-year-old kid shot dead in his yard as cops were pursuing someone else or... Uh. Uh, a homeowner who gave the keys to their uh, domicile to the police mm-hmm. who were looking for a suspect said the suspect wasn't in there, and they proceeded to um, set off tear gas grenades and destroy the home of the person. Oh. Um, so, like, and then, of course, there's outright murder that's 
captured on body cams or whatever. Mm-hmm. So right now there's like eight or nine of those those type of cases before the Supreme Court. But if you if they had to vote tomorrow, there's no guarantee with Brent Kavanaugh and people like that who've right. swung the court to a more right wing position. Yeah that it would even pass, even with all this outrage and all that. And, and, like, that seems to me to be, like, one of the most basic things that has to happen, mm-hmm. that, yeah. that um, yeah, limited immunity tr- needs to yeah. be struck down. Right. You need to be able to trust, uh, that, you know, I want to, you know, just like you said, everyone wants to live in a decent society, and that you, and you want to trust the people who, who right. work and as I, police officers. You want there to be any question. Right. Right, and you have to be able to seek recourse and seek justice mm-hmm. when they do destroy somebody, your life. Yeah, when somebody messes up. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly right. Right. So, you know, um, but I still think overall, I, I, I think things are moving in a good mm-hmm. good direction. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to stay, I'm going to hang on to that uh, belief, too. You know, just moving that, moving, keep moving, keep hanging on, moving in the right direction. <laughs> well, listen, let me, yeah, uh, I mean, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to change. Yeah, I was the, just going to say the one thing. I was just going to say the one thing is that, like, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people out there literally risking their lives on over this mm-hmm. right, the protest. Right. You know, with with the pandemic. That's so true. It, it's really, it's really that, something. Yeah, that's a serious statement. Yeah, that's yeah. And there's and there's millions of people at home supporting them too. So yeah, I believe. Well, listen, I'll change the subject to um, just. Artwork again. It, you uh, what? I know we talked about it a little bit before, but I thought this would be a great way to wind uh, wind down the episode. Okay. You know, like your okay. the piece you're working on now, or you know, and and maybe a little more about your gallery and if they're doing, if they're selling online or what you know how they're operating. Yeah, um, yeah. Robert Henry Contemporary um, and. Um, is operating online mm-hmm. and um, you can you can uh, look at uh, their website which is a good one actually they have uh, extensive uh, images of, of every artist that they show work and they do sell work okay. and uh, I highly recommend contacting them awesome. um, it, and, um, yeah so they're 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 out there and they've done great things and they've given me um, several one-person shows, and I've been in several group shows there. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're really okay. terrific. Um, all right, I'll share, their, uh, I'll share their website in, in the show notes, if that's all right. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, okay. That would be great. Cool, cool. All right. Um, and currently, I'm just moving ahead with these, these kind of uh, large improvisational ink and, and gloss drawings. Um, mm-hmm. Got another one going. That's <laughs> they usually tend to take a, uh, a couple of weeks uh-huh. of, of working and reworking. At this point, sometimes they uh, it's less work because they just uh, you know there's good things happening early on. But some of them I have to really uh, keep working, and some of them don't even uh, survive the editing process. Oh no! But um, I, but I was thinking about this. Um, you know, we we talked earlier about uh, you know uh, the unconscious and improvisational work, and I and I found, also found this great quote from Walter Benjamin, who I love. Oh, okay. uh, and, and it's it, 
and I'll just read it to you because sure, it's sure. really brief, but it but it's really kind of nice and it's it's interesting. I think for anybody involved in the arts or even music to think about, he says there are days when no one should rely unduly on his competence. Strength lies in improvisation. All decisive blows are struck left-handed. Uh. And I've always I've always found that extremely inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and and and. Uh, not to break it down too much more, but I, I do think it, it, for me, it's always meant that um, um, finding ways to surprise yourself mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. Uh, in your process, to, to try and be open to um, not going to your artistic strengths or what you know, but, mm-hmm. but to try and explore what you don't know. Right, and, right. Um, I, I kind of think that's where my work has 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 moved into and maybe that's appropriate to um somebody who's been working for over 40 years yeah um, yeah um so I, I feel like I'm, I'm 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 in a really good place and i also feel like i'm still doing the best work i've done uh-huh. um like like the next drawing i feel like is going to be better than the last one uh-huh. and, and i kind of think that's that's all you can ask right 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 exactly yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of where things are. And uh, yeah, it's all right. Yeah, so you're doing it, moving it, grooving it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, we'll see what what the, the future holds. But yeah. um, right now, I'm 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 able to work. Uh, I'm doing good work, and even though the you know whole society seems to be at a really kind of a tipping point of who knows which way we're going to go. But um, hopefully we'll get uh, Trump out of office and we can start to work on healing some of the damage that's been done. Right. And and that our our country can move forward. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, meanwhile, I'm, like, just trying to remain a... uh, art museum and gallery worker for a few more years. Sure, sure. <laughs> and, yeah, and, 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 then, uh, and then pack it in mm-hmm, by the mm-hmm. time my daughter's out of high school. Okay. So, yeah, I feel lucky, actually. Yes. I feel yeah. in a really good place. That's awesome. That is totally awesome. Well, listen, uh, uh, keep in touch. And uh, if you think of something you wanted to add, call me, text me or something, let me know. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. I'll do that. Yeah. And thank you so much. Sure. It's so nice to hear from you. Yeah, and it, you know, here. needless to say, I mean, I know we're on tape, but if you do ever come to New York and you just need uh-huh. a place to crash and not spend money on a hotel, if people ever travel to New York again, you're welcome to stay ah. here anytime. Awesome. Thank you, James. I appreciate that. For whatever that's worth. No, no. <laughs> it's I love having that option. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. No problem. Cool, dude. Great to hear from you, Larry. Please stay in touch. I sure will. All right. Take it easy. And thank you for the interview. Oh, yeah. Thank you back. (laughs) Okay. Take care. Bye. 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 Well, these are difficult times, but I think James has the right idea. Work with what you've got and move forward. Check out his artwork at the Robert Henry Contemporary Gallery. I didn't get to everything I wanted to ask James about, but this ought to do me for now. Thanks, James. I'm Larry Ford. You've been listening to Limited Perspective. If you'd like to become a patron for this podcast, you can do it for as little as $1 to $3 a month on Patreon. See you next time.